Good morning. Scott Luton here with you on this edition of This Week in Business History. Welcome to today's show. On this program, which is part of the Supply Chain Now family of programming, we take a look back at the upcoming week, and then we share some of the most relevant events and milestones from years past. Of course, mostly business-focused, with a little dab of global supply chain, and occasionally, we might just throw in a good story outside of our primary realm. So I invite you to join me on this look back in history to identify some of the most significant leaders, companies, innovations, and perhaps lessons learned in our collective business journey. Now, let's dive in to this week in business history. Hello, and thanks for joining us. I'm your host, Scott Luton, and today on this edition of This Week in Business History, we're focused on the week of November 9th. Thanks so much for listening to the show. Before we get started, I wanted to share a great experience that our team had here last week. Several of our team members and their families volunteered at an organization called the Empty Stocking Fund. Since 1927, this nonprofit has provided holiday gifts, school supplies, and much more to children in need. Last Friday, our team spent half the day at their warehouse in Atlanta, where we picked and packed Christmas gifts. The Empty Stocking Fund will be arranging the delivery of these gifts to hundreds of families in need in the coming weeks. It's such a wonderful organization doing great things for folks in need. If you'd like to learn more and possibly even get involved, visit EmptyStockingFund.org. Back to today's episode of This Week in Business History. Today, we're diving into a variety of items, including the history behind one of the world's most successful publications over the last 100 years. Stay tuned, and thanks again for joining us here on This Week in Business History, powered by our team here at Supply Chain Now. On November 12, 1889, William Roy DeWitt Wallace was born in St. Paul, Minnesota. After attending the University of California, Berkeley for a couple of years, DeWitt Wallace would return to St. Paul in 1912. He would get a job writing sales promotion letters for the web publishing company. Wallace would also develop a love for writing and the publishing business. In 1916, he would publish his first piece entitled, Getting the Most Out of Farming. It was mildly successful as Wallace would sell 100,000 copies on a whirlwind promotional trip through the American West and Northwest in a Model T. Most importantly though, was the approach that Wallace would develop with the publication. He would take snippets and short condensations of other publications and compile them together in a booklet. Right as Wallace was formulating his next steps as it related to his publishing approach, the US would enter World War I. DeWitt Wallace would serve in the U.S. Army in combat, where he'd be wounded and would spend four months recuperating at a French hospital. He'd pass the time by reading through countless magazines and plotting his next steps and publication ideas. At the end of the war, and upon his return to the States, it's been said that Wallace would spend six months every single day at the Minneapolis Public Library. While there, he'd find interesting articles that would have broad appeal and he'd condense those articles from a wide variety of magazines into one publication. 
As he was completing his first copy of the publication, DeWitt Wallace would meet the sister of an old college friend, Lila Bell. Wallace and Bell would become fast friends, and when Wallace shared his new magazine publication with her, Lila Bell loved the idea. The friendship would quickly blossom into romance. The two would marry on October 15, 1921, in Pleasantville, New York. The Great Depression was raging across the country at the time, and unfortunately, it would cost DeWitt Wallace his job. With his wife's instrumental support and encouragement, the now jobless Wallace would take the plunge and launch his new business. The first issue of the new Reader's Digest was published in February 1922. They'd published 5,000 copies, which was available by subscription at 25 cents apiece or $3 per year. Almost right away, the new project was successful and popular. From 1922 and into the decades that followed, DeWitt and Lila Bell Wallace would grow one of the most popular and widely circulated magazines in the world. The almost 100-year-old publication is the fourth most circulated magazine in the U.S. Reader's Digest says that it stands out today more than ever, quote, due to its themes of optimism, faith, heroism, trust, humor, and wellness, end quote. The publication's vision has remained to bring out the good in people and families everywhere. I've been reading Reader's Digest since childhood, thanks to my grandparents who collected that publication, along with National Geographic. My granddad had an entire wall of shelves dedicated to National Geographic magazines. And I can remember subscribing to a few other hard copy periodicals growing up. Life Magazine, U.S. News and World Report, and Nintendo Power way back in the day. What about you? What magazines were pivotal to your formative years? It's amazing just how much the printed media landscape has changed. A few other items to note on this week in business history for the week of November 9th. On November 14, 1889, groundbreaking journalist and business pioneer Elizabeth Cochran, better known by her pen name Nellie Bly, would complete an impressive sailing accomplishment. She would best fictional Phineas Fogg's 80 days and would sail around the world in 72 days, 6 hours, 11 minutes, and 14 seconds. Nellie Bly was quite a character. In a famous moment of her career, Bly would feign mental illness so that she could investigate one of New York's most infamous mental hospitals. By being admitted as a patient, Nellie Bly was able to get an up-close-and-personal look at the mistreatment of mental patients. Her six-part series in the New York world entitled 10 Days in a Madhouse quickly made Nellie Bly one of the most famous journalists in the U.S. It also paved the way for a new reporting practice that we now call investigative journalism. On November 13, 1911, Buck O'Neill was born in Carabelle, Florida. He'd go on to enjoy a successful professional baseball career in the Negro Leagues, especially with the Kansas City Monarchs. When his playing career wrapped up, O'Neill joined the Chicago Cubs as a scout, where he is credited with signing Hall of Famer Lou Brock to his first professional contract. Buck O'Neill is also credited as being the first black manager in Major League Baseball when he was named a manager by the Cubs in 1962. His strong ties at Kansas City would have him return as a scout 
for the Kansas City Royals in 1988. In 1990, O'Neill would lead the successful efforts to establish the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum in Kansas City. In 2006, at the age of 94, Buck O'Neill would become the second oldest person to ever appear as a player in a professional baseball game. On November 10, 1969, Sesame Street would debut on National Educational Television Network, which would later become the Public Broadcasting Service, PBS. It has become one of the longest-running television programs in the world and has won over 100 Emmy Awards. It is broadcast in 120 countries and has more than 30 international versions of the show. On November 9, 1989, the Berlin Wall officially opened up after weeks of regulatory easements. It had been in place for 28 years. West Berliners and East Berliners celebrated together in some of the most iconic television moments from the 20th century. On November 12, 1990, Sir Timothy John Berners-Lee would publish a formal proposal for the establishment of the World Wide Web where he called for a web of hypertext documents to be viewed by browsers using a client-server architecture. By Christmas 1990, Berners-Lee had built the first web browser and the first web server. The first ever website, which simply shared information about the World Wide Web project, went live on December 20, 1990. On November 10, 1997, board of directors for both MCI Communications and WorldCom accepted and approved a $37 billion merger, the largest in U.S. history at the time. That wraps up this edition of This Week in Business History. Those were some of the stories that stood out to us, but what do you think? What stands out to you? Tell us. Shoot us a note to amanda at supplychainnow.com or find us on LinkedIn, Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram and share your comments there. We are here to listen. Thanks so much for listening to our podcast. I hope you've enjoyed this latest edition of This Week in Business History. Hey, be sure to check out a wide variety of industry thought leadership at supplychainnow.com. You can also find This Week in Business History wherever you get your podcast from. And be sure to tell us what you think. We'd love to earn your review. On behalf of the entire team here at This Week in Business History and Supply Chain Now, this is Scott Luton wishing all of our listeners nothing but the best. Thank you so much. We're grateful for your support. Hey, do good, give forward, and be the change that's needed. And on that note, we'll see you next time here on This Week in Business History. Thanks, everybody.